is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Greg Salmieri, visiting fellow in the Department of Philosophy at Boston University. And he is here to discuss the Aristotelian good life and productive work. Greg Salmieri, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So a lot of contemporary ethicists are interested in Aristotle and sort of bringing him back, there's this neo-Aristotelian movement in ethics. But what was Aristotle really concerned with? Aristotle's ethics starts with the idea of an end, that human activities all aim at different ends. Sometimes some ends are subordinate to others. And he asks, what is the end of everything we do? What is the end of a human life as such? And he tries to answer that question. And his view amounts to that the ultimate end for any given agent is to lead a certain type of life. And he tries to define what type of life that is. Very broadly speaking, it's a life in which we develop and exercise a whole range of abilities that we have. And so when when Aristotle talks about, or rather when we, translating Aristotle, talk about ends, we mean aims or goals or something like that. So the ends of life are, are the aims or goals of, of life. Um, I mean, one thing that you've talked about a little bit in your writings is this point in, in Aristotle where he distinguishes kind of three kinds of life that you might think were the best kind of life. Three ends or three aims that you might think were the kind of fundamental aim that a life should be directed towards. Uh, maybe you could say something about those. What are the kinds of candidates for the best life that Aristotle thinks there are? Yeah, he mentions three or four, depending on what you count as a mention, types of life that people lead, people who have some choice over what life they lead, and that's significant. But three or four types of type lives people lead and, and tries to identify what the end inherent in each of them is. And one of these lives is the life he himself led, a life of study or contemplation is probably a better translation, theoria, the life of a philosopher or scientist, a life of contemplating the kind of eternal truths. The second kind of life is the life of a politician. Understand that not someone who's always seeking office and in the kind of swarmy way we sometimes think of politicians, but the life of a statesman, somebody who's involved with trying to achieve the best for his community. The third that he talks about a lot of people leading, which he has a less high view of, is the life of gratification, a life that seems to be aimed at pleasure. And the uh, fourth, which he barely mentions because he thinks it's really ridiculous to think that this is what life is all about, is the life of money-making, a life aimed at money which would seem to be a ridiculous thing to aim your life at because surely the money's only valuable for the pursuit of some other end, perhaps pleasure, perhaps being of service to the city, perhaps theoria, so that he kind of just mentions to pass by. 
Okay, so that seems like kind of a weird list, right? I mean, it's, yes, to me also. Right. So, I mean, I guess, you know, we sitting here could put ourselves into one of those kinds of lives. I mean, we're all in some sense philosophers, but that seems like it's not going to be the case for most people. It, you know, you, you can imagine a lot of people listening to this thinking, well, I'm not sure I'm doing any of those things. I'm not sure I'm living a philosophical, political, or a pleasure-seeking life. So, I mean, is there a way in which Aristotle's idea here is, is really going to be relevant to us and the kind of lives that we lead? Yeah, I think that's a really excellent question. And it, in some way, speaks to the kind of social circumstances or political circumstances in Athens at the time. But I think there's also something deeper behind it. Recall I said these are the, the lives led by people who have a choice in the matter. And what does that mean? Well, it means people who don't need to spend their time making the stuff they need to stay alive. They don't, in effect, have a job they have to do. One of my old professors once described Aristotle as having a consumer's ethics. And I think there's something really right about that. If, if you are a member of the leisured aristocratic class, what are you going to do with your time? Well, maybe you'll become civically active. Maybe you'll just be a kind of party animal. Maybe you'll just try and get more and more wealth. But why would you do that? You already have enough wealth to be at leisure. Or maybe you'll go in for philosophy. And these seem to be the candidate lives open to people. At least they're the ones he was considering. And you can understand why he would focus on those in that historical context. Frankly, though, there was another kind of life people were leading even then that in his ethics he doesn't really mention. And in the politics where he does talk about it, he has some pretty bleak things to say about. And that's the life of what in Greece was called a banausos, a kind of um, artisan or, or work handy worker. This would be someone, say, whose job was to manufacture shields or maybe pottery. Uh, there were a lot of these people in Athens at the time, these Banausoi. Athens was a very rich society. It had consisted up till now of people who owned farms and the people who worked on them, most of whom were slaves. But now there were suddenly people whose whole job was making lots of pots for different people, making lots of shields for the army. They didn't have a farm. You know, they just had this kind of occupation, some of whom were growing quite rich. And... There was definitely a negative attitude in Athenian society towards these people. We can see that reflected in Aristotle's ethics in a kind of subtle way. One of the vices that he mentions is banosia, uh, the vice of being like a banausoi. Etymologically speaking, the way he describes it, though, is it's the vice of having a lot of money and spending it too extravagantly. You know, these, I can never pronounce French, but nouveau riche sorts who, uh, you know, their conspicuous consumption and so forth. So it was definitely a negative attitude towards these people, and Aristotle was party to it. And quite disturbingly, in the politics, he thinks such people are unfit for citizenship. Why were craftsmen in the ancient world looked down upon? I mean, intuitively, making shields and pottery, not the sort of thing I do every day, but presumably it takes some skill and there's an art to it. And I mean, it's something that you could respect. You know, what's not to admire about craftsmen? That's a good question, and historians of the period have different views about that. Uh, if we're asking about why Athenian society generally held this attitude. With respect to Aristotle and Plato before him, there's a certain sense in which they do have a lot of respect for craft knowledge. You can see them using analogies to it all the time. 
in different parts of their philosophy, but they did share this negative view of the life of a craftsman. Why Aristotle thought they weren't fit for citizenship had to do with them, in some sense, not having a life of their own. They were like slaves in that they were not serving the needs of one master, but always producing something to fill into someone else's life, rather than being self-sufficient in the way that you might think a farm was. Uh, he knew farms weren't quite self-sufficient, but they're, they have a kind of self-contained or approximating to self-contained goal. So Aristotle kind of has this negative view of the life of a craftsman to the extent that that's someone who is directed fundamentally towards producing things for someone else that will fit into someone else's life. But that's what their whole life is directed towards. I mean, I know something that you've been interested in, something that you've written about, is his attitude, you know, not just to the overall life of such a person, but to the specific activity of production, um, his views on that. So maybe you could say a little bit about that. What does, what does Aristotle think about productive activity, the kind of activity in which a, a craftsman is engaged? I think the first thing to say about his view of productive activity is that he thinks it's good. It's certainly necessary. We need various products. But he thinks that it's less good than some other types of activity. In general, for Aristotle, if one thing is for the sake of another thing, then the first thing is less valuable than the second, because it derives its value for the thing that it's for the sake of. So a productive activity, say making a horseshoe or baking a cake, right, is for the sake of the product of that activity, the horseshoe or the cake. And then the product of that activity, thinks Aristotle, is for the sake of using it using it in some other activity, say riding a horse or eating it. And so the acts of production are going to have their value derivatively on the products, and the products themselves are only going to have their value in the use that can be made of them, the activities that they enable. And it's those kinds of activities, which Aristotle thinks are ultimately not productive, that are of the greatest value principally the activity of theoretical study is the one he thinks of, is of the greatest value, but also, to a somewhat lesser extent, the activities involved in acting nobly and arranging the affairs of the city, the activities that are involved, that is, in the lives of contemplation and the life of the statesman. So someone might think that you know, producing tires or something is just a good thing to do, but Aristotle's going to want to say something like, well you know, it's only good to produce tires if you think it's good to produce cars. And, you know, then it's only good to produce cars if you think it's good to go somewhere in the way that a car gets you there. And it's, it's only good to go somewhere in the way that a car gets you there if there's something there to get to once you're there, and so on and so forth until you reach one of these kind of end points. I mean, is that the basic? Yes, and okay. I think there is something intuitive and actually right about that. I mean, nobody would want to just produce cars just for the fun of it. And if they did, if someone was just producing tires just to do it, like as some kind of vocational therapy or something, then we wouldn't really understand their act as one of production. They'd be some kind of you know, weird installation artist or something. Okay, so there's this idea that because when you make something, the only reason you're really making it is to have the thing later, then the thing you make is, in some sense, 
you know, more valuable than the activity of making it. Because the only reason you were making it was to make the thing. Do you think that's right? I agree with it to a point. But I think we really have to think hard now about the things that are meant to be good, not in relation to something else on this type of view. That is, a tire or the act of making a tire are thought to be good only because of something beyond themselves that they contribute to, and so are thought to be less good than those things. I agree with Aristotle's view to the extent that if you isolated off a tire or the act of making a tire from the things that it leads to, it would cease to be good, certainly cease to be as good. But Aristotle thinks that uh, these activities like engaging in contemplation or um, trying to tend to the affairs of the city are not like that. That certainly in the case of contemplation, it's good in itself quite apart from its connection to anything beyond it. And that I find more dubious. So maybe you could say something a little bit more about that, because on the face of it, there's an intuitive kind of idea there, right? You know, study for the sake of study. I mean, why do we, you know, why do we do philosophy? Why do we study poetry? Why do we do any of these? Well, just because it's a valuable thing to do. You know, we, I mean, some people, I guess particularly some people in, in academic circles will even look down upon the idea that we should have this conception of academic or theoretical study as for something else. I mean, maybe it has applications somewhere, but you don't do it for the applications. You do it for itself. What, what's wrong with that idea? Well, I think you can distinguish two ways in which something might be for something else. This is actually a distinction Aristotle himself draws. Let's put it another way, two ways in which something could fail to be for the sake of something else. You might think that a paintbrush is for the sake of uh, creating a painting, and the paints are for the sake of creating the painting. That is, someone wants the paints and the paintbrush is for the sake of the painting. But the painting isn't for anything further. And I think that's true in a way. It's not for anything further in the same way as these other things, which are mere tools for a certain goal, are for the sake of something further. We might say that the painting is an end in itself, or it's ultimate. And you can give a list of several different types of goods that seem to be ultimate. Aristotle does. Pleasure seems to be ultimate. It doesn't seem to be for the sake of anything beyond the pleasure. Uh, learning, in some cases, at least to some people, certainly to Aristotle, seems to be ultimate in that way. Virtue, at least to a lot of the Greeks, including Aristotle, also seemed to be ultimate. But then when you have a group of things, each of which are ultimate in the sense of not being for the sake of any specific end, there's another question you can ask about each of these ends, which is, are they sufficient? Are they enough? So if you take the end of pleasure, is this enough to be what life's all about? And there are arguments that it isn't. You can imagine a life that was well-stocked with pleasure, but you took everything else away from it that wasn't there just to lead to pleasure. There's a famous argument in Plato I call the orgasmic oyster argument. If you imagine you don't need memories because you're so pleased at the moment and you, don't need them, and you end up uh, with a kind of shellfish life, a shellfish experiencing a kind of shriek of ecstasy, so the orgasmic oyster. Um, Nozick's famous pleasure machine argument is kind of like an updating of this. And most people recoil at the idea of such a life. They know that's not that there's something good about that life, to be sure, the pleasure, but I want a life with more in it. I think we can do the same kind of thing for contemplation. It's certainly a good thing in life. But a life of just understanding the universe, 
but where there are no other components to it. No, for example, love relationships. No sense of efficacy of achieving things in the world. Uh, seems to me, interestingly not to Aristotle, to be a, a life that's missing quite a lot. And if that's right, once you notice that one of these values that's ultimate in the sense that there's no particular goal that you can say it's for in the way that a tool is for what the tool's for, once you see that one of these values is not enough, you start to think, well, it really has to take its place as one member of a wider constellation of values. And then you start thinking about whether to pursue that value, that one narrower value at a given time, as a function of what contribution it makes to the wider constellation of values. So that leads to thinking of the one value, in this case, contemplation, as being a means to, in a kind of different sense, to this more ultimate end of a certain type of life. And this is the strategy Aristotle takes with respect to things like pleasure. To a certain extent, he takes it even with respect to contemplation for human beings. His God just is a contemplator that doesn't do anything else. But for a human being, we can't live that kind of life. And so for us, contemplation should play a dominant part, but in a life that's not only contemplation. And so in that sense, I don't think contemplation is ultimate. So just to clarify, you you were talking about a couple of different ways in which one thing could be for the sake of another thing. So I mean, let, let me see if I've understood. So one way is this kind of straightforward way, you might say this instrumental kind of relation where um, you know, the making the tire is for the sake of making the car. You have a kind of instrumental relation between the two of them. And it seems like you might think that contemplation doesn't have that kind of relation to anything beyond it. But then you were suggesting there's there's another way in which um, contemplation could be a kind of means to something, and it would be a means in the sense that it was part of a picture that was bigger than just contemplation. So I, I mean, is that right, that I kind of engage in contemplation as part of a complete life, well-lived? I agree with that, but I'd like to add something to it. One way of putting this is to draw a distinction between what are sometimes called, you know, instrumental means and constitutive means. So an instrumental means is valuable because of something that it produces, uh, the end that it produces, whereas a constituent means is valuable because it's a part of some greater end. And I certainly think Aristotle's view is that things like pleasure are constitutive means to the greatest life, and even contemplation is sort of like that, but it has this very privileged place. But even this distinction between instrumental and constitutive means, I think, is too hard and fast. You might think, for example, about the experience of looking at a great artwork, that it's not an instrumental means in the sense that there's no particular goal that you look at the artwork to further. In that sense, it's experienced as an end in itself. And maybe a love relationship is like that, too, uh, and maybe contemplation. Does that mean that it's good only as a constituent of a greater whole, and that nothing further good is a consequence of it, or if it is, that's only incidental to its goodness. I don't think so. It might be part of what makes these things part of a good life, what makes love and artwork and contemplation part of the best kind of life, might be the kinds of consequences that they have, the kinds of things that they lead to, just not in a one-by-one -one sort of way. 
So you don't look at the, the statue of David or listen to a symphony or fall in love with somebody in order to achieve some particular concrete further goal. But it might be that part of what makes those kinds of experiences part of a life worth living is that I ha they have a function, for example, in our motivational psychology, that a life without artwork in it would result in a lack of motivation, say, so that we wouldn't then go on to do other things. So it might be that the right way to understand these constitutive means constituting their end is to understand them as playing a certain function in a whole and therefore as having certain consequences but not being valued for the consequences one by one, so to speak. Certainly I think we can think of science that way. I mean, if you went to a great scientist who had discovered something, he started gushing to him about the value of his invention but what you kept on citing is one particular narrow material application. We're going to build so much of a better mousetrap with your new discussion. And I think it would be quite reasonable for the guy to think you've missed the point. But why did you miss the point? One view might be that this kind of knowledge is just valuable totally apart from any application it could have. Another view you might have is more of a kind of Francis Bacon type view, where the knowledge is valuable precisely because of the ways it can enrich human life and ability. Knowledge is power, right, is the famous Baconian slogan. But not some one specific application to a mousetrap, but the way in which it increases our power over nature or our ability to create things that will benefit us. So getting back to Aristotle, who thought that contemplation and statesmanship were intrinsically valuable, as opposed to craftsmanship, which is only valuable insofar as it contributes to something else. What were some of the social consequences of that idea? Well, in terms of consequences on the society, you know, what people did with it, it's not clear a lot of the institutions that this idea supports, you know, might, may have done quite well without Aristotle's endorsement of them. But it did lead Aristotle to endorse slavery, and it led him to endorse the kind of disenfranchisement we discussed earlier of the Banausoi, the productive class, the people who would become the middle class as they developed. It also, I think, by doing this, gives Aristotelian ethics a sort of elitist character that a lot of people have rightly found objectionable, only a small group of people who, who don't need to earn their own keep, so to speak, can engage in the kind of life Aristotle thinks of as the best. And they're doing so in their leisure time, which leisure time is made possible by other people who are supporting them. So, obviously, the contemporary philosophers who have wanted to bring back some of Aristotle's insights have not wanted to embrace uh, his views about slavery. And so there's, there seems to be a kind of general consensus that, well, look, we can take a lot of what's good about Aristotle's view and amend it in various ways. So we can say Aristotle was right about a lot of things. He was just wrong about slavery. And so our idea about the best kind of life and the virtuous person has to include a set of ideas about, for example, slavery being wrong, being unjust, whatever else. But once we've done that, we have a, a workable Aristotelian view. I mean, does that strike you as a, a reasonable kind of way to go? Well, I think there's a little more one needs to do than that. I mean, what people are actually doing when they're developing neo-Aristotelianisms along this line is they're really focusing on the second of the two activities that Aristotle thinks are good, right? There's contemplation and there's also the kind of activity of which 
statesmanship is the paradigm case, and that's the activity of being a good citizen, being a good member of a community, and also just leading one's life, conducting one's affairs in a sensible but also sort of elevated and noble way. And the way that people deal quite sensibly with uh, the slavery and the disenfranchisement issues is to add to our understanding of what it is to conduct oneself in a reasonable or noble way in one's interactions with others and in one's making life decisions and to include as part of that that one shouldn't be exploiting or enslaving people. And I think that's right and that certainly improves on the Aristotelian picture quite a bit. But I think there's a deeper issue here that really needs to be addressed. Because I think there's another form of slavery or exploitation, we might say it's a form of slavery or exploitation only metaphorically, that is still left after you add to the Aristotelian view of the good life that you can't be exploiting other people. If you think of productive activities as good only for the sake of their ends, and therefore as less good than contemplation and making good life decisions and so forth, what results? Well, these productive activities still need to be engaged in. We need to live, and living requires creating food and creating all the various other values needed to survive. So what you're saying is that all the activities that produce that are, you know, sort of a drag. We wish we could, you know, offload them onto some slaves or uh, disenfranchised surf-like people to do it. We now recognize that's wrong, so damn it, you know, we've got to take that on ourselves. And what you end up doing is thinking of the part of your life which is earning a living as something that's not worthwhile in its own right. You end up living for the weekend, so to speak, or at least conceptualizing your time that way so that you think of most of what you do as a drag, unworthwhile, not really valuable, and as what it's all for being your time off. So is, is your thought here that in order to really kind of bring Aristotle up to date, so to speak, we're going to have to have a different view about the value of these productive activities. We're going we're gonna to have to see them as somehow not just worthwhile for the sake of something else, but worthwhile in themselves. But I don't think it's only something that we should do to bring Aristotle up to date, so that if we're not already interested in Aristotle, we shouldn't be rethinking the place of productive work in our lives. The fact is a whole lot of our tradition of moral thinking developed in a kind of situation where there were aristocrats thinking about what to do with their spare time, and work was seen as drudgery, or else was developed by workers who just accepted that their work was drudgery but had to deal with how to interact with one another. But now we have a society where most of our lives are centered around careers. What most of us find really valuable about our lives, or at least very many of us, has to do with what we get out of our work. If you look at popular psychology books and things, they'll tell you it's really important to love your work or to find something you love to do. I think there's a real insight in that aspect of modern culture that needs to play a more central role in ethics than it does. Okay, so we have this phenomenon which you might think of as kind of like the revenge of slavery, or slavery comes back. You know, we, instead of enslaving others, we enslave ourselves and you know, live for the weekend. What exactly would your proposed solution to that look like? Would it be something like, when I go to work Monday through Friday, 
manufacturing circuit boards, I recognize that the act of making circuit boards contributes to the whole of my life in something like the way the act of contemplating does rather than merely towards some specific purpose? Or how would that work exactly? Well, I think what we should do is start thinking of our lives as wholes. I mean, Aristotle talked about life being an activity, and I think there's something really right about that. But I think an important part of that activity, what makes it a life rather than some smaller activity, is that it's self-sustaining activity. And I think we should really think of each of these activities in terms of their role in keeping this whole process, which is a life, going. And none of them, not contemplation, not putting the things on the circuit board, not going to a play, is intrinsically value or valuable, or valuable as an end in itself, if what we mean by that is that it has its value even if you wholly isolate it from the rest of the whole, which is the life. Rather, it's valuable only as part of the life. And uh, the life itself as a whole is a process in which each part contributes to helping keeping this whole going. And if you have that sort of a view of life, where there aren't bits of it that are just good in itself, independent of the rest, but each bit of it is valuable for the contribution it makes to the whole, then I think there are a lot of different types of lives and a lot of different types of life activities that you can see as valuable. And it helps to understand their value to think about what relation they have to the whole. So if your job is building circuit boards, you should think about why you chose this job, how it fits into your other values. If you value understanding and science, as I think we ought to, you should think about what exercises of your intellectual faculties are involved in the circuit board job that you have, even if you're a kind of job is a manual labor or just kind of stamping the chips into the sockets, you should, or one good thing you might do is take an interest into why this job is of value, think about how it might be done a little better, maybe that's a way to advance up the circuit board ladder, so to speak. Let me just add one thing, I think you should do that too if your job is being a philosopher or being a scientist, the kinds of things that Aristotle would think of as contemplation. I think a lot of intellectuals have a kind of attitude that what they do is just intrinsically valuable. And uh, uh, at least they claim that. But I, I don't think it is, and I don't think you really can experience it as such. I think if you think of your work that way, not as making a contribution to any other part of life, you end up feeling very detached from the rest of the world. You end up not knowing why it's worth people paying your salary, thinking it is just because you know the intellect is good or something, but not seeing how they benefit from it. Um, you have a, there's a kind of contempt some people have for their students, I've noticed, that comes from uh, not thinking that the problems they work on ought to bear on other people's lives. And I think it's really important for intellectuals to think about what they're producing that's of value, not just for other people, but for the other parts of life. And so, therefore, for the people who are specialists in those other parts. So I wonder if there would be the following kind of consequence of this view. I mean, you were talking about people's relation to their work and how to think about one's work. I mean, what do you make of the thought that there are some kinds of jobs that just conduce better to that than others? With the best will in the world, if you're putting things in boxes for Amazon and you have to get a certain amount of them done in a minute and you have someone standing over you with a stopwatch and they're going to fire you if you don't meet your quota on the rest of it. It's just a lot more difficult to see your work in, in the right kind of way than it is if you're 
I don't know, a skilled mechanic building something. So, I mean, is there a consequence here that we should be trying to do something about the conditions under which people work, that we should promote certain kinds of jobs rather than others? Um, I'm not sure about that, and I'm not sure who the we is in, in a sentence like that. But when we think about, there, there are certainly jobs that aren't in themselves all that satisfying. You, you mentioned the job of putting things in boxes. But there are different roles that a job might play in someone's life. So um, if you think about a job like that, it might be the kind of job that somebody would have when they were younger and try to graduate beyond. It also might be a kind of job that somebody might have, so to speak, as a day job if they have a, um, you know, they're trying to make it as an actor or something, but they need a job that's not very time intensive to do as a secondary thing. And they could appreciate it as having that role in their lives, as supporting some other activities. And also then within that context, try to use as much of themselves in it to make it a better job as possible. I mean, I don't deny that there are people in conditions where the best jobs available to them are very unfulfilling, and that's sad, and hopefully we're getting, you know, as society progresses, more and more of those jobs are automatized, and those people find more and more interesting things to do. But I think the real tragedy is when we take the more interesting things to do and think of what's valuable about them as sort of detached from the fact that they have among their consequences, utilitarian benefits like feeding people, uh, feeding oneself and the people with whom one deals. And I think we often miss out on a lot of the opportunities to use our intellect and what you might think of as our higher faculties in what seem like bad jobs. There are always ways to do things a little bit better. Usually coming up with a way to do it a little bit better requires some real ingenuity. Uh, Often that leads to advancement, certainly in a well-structured workplace it does. We could also raise the same question not with respect to jobs, but just with the activities in your life. I mean, you have to wash the dishes unless you're, maybe you can hire someone to do it, but if not, that's just a little chore that needs to get done. And I think one should appreciate that as being part of being a self-sustaining human being, being part of the activity that's a human life, and recognizing that it's a part of taking responsibility for your life and a part of living makes it a little more enjoyable than if you didn't. But surely that activity is of mere instrumental value by comparison to the activity of spending time with your loved ones or engaging in a career that you find really thrilling and exciting. So I don't want to make everything we do seem like it's an exercise of our highest faculties and central to what makes life worth living. But I do think it's important that we see everything we do in relation to a life that's a self-supporting whole. And we see the goodness of all the aspects of our life as parts of that. And then some will be more central parts of it uh, than others. Some things on the periphery, like doing the dishes or maybe the, the boxing job that you want to advance out of, will have more the character of mere means. And some things like appreciating a, um, a fine glass of wine or coming up with a new scientific discovery will have more the character of pure ends. But I think that's a really a sliding scale, and all of them are ultimately of value as being part of this whole life. Greg Salmieri, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 